I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel 15, it's on page 248 in the Pew Bible. Page 248 in the Pew Bible, 2 Samuel 15. In what is the greatest sermon ever in the history of the world, Jesus Christ declared near the outset of that sermon, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said that that was one of the most seductive lies ever foisted on humanity. And Nietzsche turned Jesus' statement on its head and he said, Assert yourself. It is the arrogant who take over the earth. Now, probably most of us would be more inclined to embrace the words of Jesus over Nietzsche. But sometimes when we face hard circumstances in life, when we're trying to do the right thing, and others seem to be advancing beyond us, they seem to be successful, and we seem to be flailing, It's sometimes hard to get over the notion that nice guys finish last. And that's why I believe that expression is so well known. We don't want to believe it's true, but sometimes we wonder if it's true. And that certainly seems to be the case as Absalom, David's son, conspires against his own father to seize the kingship of Israel. Absalom seems to be on the rise. He is indeed on the rise. And David appears in weakness, in retreat from his son. So we're going to come into some gloomy chapters here in 2 Samuel 15 and 16 as Absalom makes his power grab for the throne. This was a terrible sin on Absalom's part, as we will see. But God was going to use Absalom's sin to discipline David to bring David back where David needed to be in his relationship with God, in fulfilling the role that God called him to be. Early on in David's reign, he had embodied some of the greatness of the kingdom of God, a greatness that is described and demonstrated perfectly by Jesus himself. When Jesus called his disciples to himself and he said, Whoever would be great among you must be servant of all. And he who would be first among you must be a slave of all. And then speaking in reference to himself, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's why we boast in Christ our Redeemer that our identity, our worth, is found at the cross of Christ. When David had the opportunity to seize the throne by killing Saul in his younger days, David refused to take that power. He refused to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. The Lord's anointed. He entrusted himself to God. He waited patiently for the Lord. He would not take the throne from Saul in a power grab. But later in his reign, once the Lord gave David the throne as promised, David did make a power grab. He took Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, in an act of adultery. 
And then to cover his sin, David used his power to take Uriah's life. When David was confronted about his sin, he he confessed it, saying, I have sinned against the Lord. And those were not mere words to David. He really meant it. And, And God, in his mercy, took away David's sin. God forgave David. He pardoned him. But the Lord also told David that there would be severe consequences for what he had done. First, the child that was born to David and Bathsheba as a result of adultery would die. Secondly, the Lord said, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And in the continuing narrative of 2 Samuel, we have already seen some of this horrific violence and bloodshed that occurred in David's family. David's son, Amnon, rapes his own half-sister, Tamar, who runs to her full brother, Absalom, and Absalom plots for two years to get revenge on Amnon, which he does. He murders him. He has him killed in what he perceives as an act of justice, but it's really murderous vigilantism. And now, in the next few chapters, we're going to see further violence, further evil arising out of David's house as his own son Absalom now conspires to seize the kingship of Israel from David. As we follow Absalom's rise to power over these next couple of chapters, and what appears to be the weakness of David's kingdom, we will see that true greatness does not lie in grabbing power, but in giving yourself in service to others for the glory of God. It's the long game that pays off in the end, even though in the short term it may not seem like it's worth it. That's the lesson that God wanted David to learn, That's the place where God wanted David to be. And it's the lesson that God wants us to learn. It's the place of servanthood that God wants us to be. And sadly, it's a lesson that Absalom, David's son, never learned until it was too late. So let's look at 2 Samuel 15. Again, it's on page 248 in your pew Bible. As we consider his rebellion. The chapter begins in English with two words, after this. After what? Well, after David let Absalom return to Jerusalem years after he had killed his brother Amnon. After David received Absalom back into his presence and after David kissed Absalom, which signified that Absalom was restored to the royal family. He was reinstated. But that was not good enough for Absalom. Absalom wanted more than the king's acceptance. Absalom wanted the king's throne. And so he employed what one commentator refers to Absalom-style politics. Let's read on. First of all, Absalom employs the politics of pomp. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. You know, when I first read that, the first thing that stuck out to me was Absalom got himself. And I believe that clause really sums up what Absalom was all about, himself. Absalom got himself a chariot, 
horses, and 50 men to run before him. And the only purpose of the horses, the chariot, and the men was to make Absalom look important. Absalom had bought into the idea that was propagated even on commercials years ago in our own land that image is everything. Remember Andre Agassi, the tennis pro? You younger people wouldn't remember that, but some of us would. Back in his heyday, uh, it was actually a commercial for the Canon Rebel camera. Image is everything. And here we have a kingdom rebel who buys into that notion that image is everything. Absalom's use of a chariot is significant in light of what his own father David wrote in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so Absalom's use of a chariot, his use of horses, is more than pompous. It's more than pretentious. Absalom is laying hold of a kind of power that revolves around self and relies upon human ingenuity and resources rather than the Lord. It's easy to be duped by the politics of pomp, which says that if you want to be great, you have to look great. We see it all the time in the world of sports, business, certainly politics itself, and sometimes, sadly, even in the church. Jesus gave very strong warnings against those who deliberately drew attention to themselves. Now I'm going to draw attention to one brother who's probably going to kill me afterwards, but I thought of how significant it was that just before the service, I was talking to Jay, who was about to do scripture reading publicly for the first time here on the platform. And he said, I said, how you doing? He said, well, I'm, I'm okay. He goes, I'm just a little nervous. I don't want to draw attention to myself. Praise God for that, right? It's not about drawing attention to ourselves. Jesus said, let others see your good works that they may what? Glorify your Father in heaven. We thank the Lord for Jay's ministry to us this morning. But it's easy for us to be duped by the politics of pomp, which says, if you want to be great, you have to look great. And Jesus warned against those who drew attention to themselves by power dressing and other conspicuous displays of grandeur designed to make ourselves look important, more important than others. As recently as this morning, I read a helpful book by Tim Keller that I got in the mail just yesterday called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And in it he writes, quote, the ego is always drawing attention to itself, always making us think about how we look and how we are treated. End quote. Would you agree that we all struggle with that? That we all struggle with how we look, how we're treated, how we're viewed by others? The ego... Pride is something we battle on a daily basis, even moment by moment. The politics of pomp, the idea that image is everything, is rooted in pride. It's all about how I look, what others think about me, instead of serving others to the glory of God and forgetting about yourself. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ can liberate us from the prison of pride. Two wonders I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. My identity is found 
at the cross. We just sang that. And that's why Jesus told his followers this idea of lording over people, of making yourself look important, of trying to impress others, this idea that image is everything about this power grab. Jesus says, that's the way they operate out there, but it shall not be so among you. Well, after, after employing the politics of pomp, Absalom goes on to employ the politics of promises. And don't we see that in politics today? Look at verses 2 to 4. And Absalom used to rise early and stand by the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, Oh, from what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say, See, your claims are good and right. But there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. What a weasel. Do you see what he's doing? Oh, now what's your name? Oh, where are you from? Oh, it's so good. Oh, oh, I hear exactly what you're saying. I share your concern. If only the king had someone that, that... cared enough to listen to you. Oh, if only I were appointed judge. He doesn't say king because that might be too obvious. If I were appointed judge, I would give justice to everyone. He sounds like the politicians that promise everything, right? Um, More entitlements, lower taxes, and we're going to balance the budget. And everything you want. If you want your wildest dreams to come true, just elect me and they'll come true. It's the politics of promises. The politics of promises is designed to sow content, discontent in people's hearts with those who are presently in leadership so that they will see you as the solution to their unhappiness. We see it in politics all the time today. Absalom employed these politics. They're nothing new. We should know better than to be duped by the politics of promises, but so often we are. But then Absalom caps it all off. After employing the politics of his pomp, the politics of promises, now he sprinkles a little bit of charm on top. The politics of pleasing, we could call it. Verses 5 and 6. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. One paraphrase of this verse says, whenever someone would treat him with special honor, he would shrug it off and treat him like an equal, making him feel important. So Absalom at the same time wants to make himself look important, but at the same time he wants to identify with the common folk. I suppose if Absalom were campaigning for president today in the United States of America, we might see him somewhere in Iowa with an open flannel shirt and jeans with his you know, knee up on a fence talking to a farmer about their issues. Right? want to look important, but you also want to identify with the common man. And, and as people would, would uh, pay homage, and, and that literally, you know, to kiss toward, they, they would show Absalom favor, maybe getting down on the knees, bowing for him. He would lift them to the ears. Oh, no, 
No, we're in this together. I'm with you in this. We're one. As we consider those words, commentator John uh, Woodhouse draws out some very key observations. Let me read this to you. He says, and I quote, a very careful reader of this story might notice that Absalom would take hold of him. That's what the text says. And this repeats the wording of chapter 13, verse 11, where Amnon took hold of Tamar to violate her. The expression suggests that this was an act of Absalom's strength imposed on a weaker party. Right? It's not physical domination. It's psychological, emotional, persuasive domination. More obviously, his kiss is a remarkable repetition of what the king had recently done to him. Absalom was behaving like the king. Perhaps the evident falseness of Absalom's kiss suggests retrospectively that there may have been insincerity in David's gesture. End quote. Interesting stuff. So much here. So many subtle clues. So many ironic twists. So many play on words here in the text. But the main thing to remember is that the people of Israel fell for Absalom's ploy. The politics of pomp, the politics of promises, the politics of pleasing, they fell for it hook, line, and sinker just like people do today. The idiom that he stole away their hearts does not refer to capturing their affection, but to duping their minds. His political approach worked. And these methods, these tactics, still work today. But those who fall hook, line, and sinker for these tactics are simply being duped, just like the people of Israel. After employing these methods, Absalom makes his move. Look at verses 7 to 12. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence knowing nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. <laughs> Things are clearly moving in Absalom's favor. His four-year scheme comes to fruition. Remember, Absalom had plotted the murder of Amnon for two years after the rape of Tamar. And now he has been plotting four years to take the throne of David. This guy is a conniver. He's what one singer called a smooth operator, right? Absalom knows how to work the system. He knows how to wait to be patient, to wait for just the right moment for his long-harbored intentions to come to fruition. With the political winds now in his favor, he makes his move. He asks the king if he can go to Hebron where he can offer worship to the Lord. This is Absalom's last mention of God. And David replies, go in peace. These, by the way, are David's last words to Absalom. And boy, are they full of irony. 
because Absalom's name means father of peace. And the place where this conversation takes place is in Jerusalem, the city of peace. But this conversation sets the stage for war. Hebron is 19 miles south of Jerusalem. It was Absalom's birthplace, which would make sense for him to offer worship to the Lord there. But there was more to this than met the eye. Because it is also the place, you might remember, where David was first anointed king. Furthermore, I appreciate what one commentator pointed out, it was also Abraham's town, and therefore linked David's kingship to God's promises to Abraham. So this is a big deal to go to Hebron and be anointed king there. This is where Absalom is going to launch his conspiracy to get rid of King David and to usurp his throne. And I thought, even as this morning, as I reviewed those verses, I said, boy, it's easy for us to look at what a weasel Absalom was. But in a far greater way, we are guilty of the same crime when we try to contend for supremacy with God himself. Where God is the rightful king, and we are wanting to usurp God's rightful authority over our lives and live our lives our way instead of God's way. We are guilty of cosmic treason against the ultimate true king. Sadly, in a very natural way, there is an Absalom in all of us. And that requires repentance. And so began David's darkest day. But in the midst of David's retreat, this, this very dark season he goes through, we see the light of his character begin to shine once again. We see some of the old David come back. The David that submitted himself fully to the will of God and was also concerned about the interests of others as the shepherd of Israel. About a month ago, Pastor Mike preached a sermon that was appropriately titled, Like Father, Like Son. Well, in this case, we see that the father is not like his son. Instead of grabbing power, he gives himself in service to others for God's glory. Those who serve themselves are not submitted to God's will. Those who serve themselves are not submitted to God's will. Well, so much for Absalom. But how did his actions, his politics, his maneuvering, his methods, and his move, how did all this affect David? Well, that's the rest of the chapter, David's retreat. David's retreat. Look at verses 13 to 17 of 2 Samuel 15. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest you overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house, meaning they're the edge of the city. <laughs> Talk about history repeating itself. David is a fugitive once again. 
Only this time it's not from King Saul. It's from his own son. And yet we see that David is not alone. For the text says in verse 17 that the king went out and all the people after him. Literally it says they went out in his feet. And that is meant to indicate how close these people were to David. How much they trusted him. They were ready to do anything David wanted them to do. The Hebrew expression, in his feet, also indicates that David literally left the city on foot. And as we see that in contrast to Absalom, we say, wow, you know, there was no pomp at all in David's departure from Jerusalem. How different from the day that he triumphantly took over the city. Do you remember that? Do you remember with the great joy that he experienced as he brought the ark of God into the city? But now barefoot, weeping, David leaves the city. It was a sad, dark day. You know, the author of Hebrews reminds us that no discipline at the time is pleasant, but painful. And yet afterwards, it produces the peaceful harvest of right living by those who have been trained by it. So even as David retreats from Absalom, what we're seeing is, yes, he's retreating from Absalom, but he's actually moving forward spiritually. God's discipline is accomplishing its designed purpose in David's life. Absalom is responsible, fully responsible for his sin, but God is sovereign over Absalom's sin and is using it for a good purpose in David's life. As David and those with him come to the edge of the city, they halt at the last house. Picking up the narrative in verse 18, we read, And all his servants passed by him, and all the Carathites, and all the Pelophites, and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath, passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him, his own children. As David leaves the city with his household, they pause at the outskirts of the city so that the king's men can pass on before him and lead the way. The king's men consist of the Carathites and the Pelophites. They're not mentioned much in Scripture. I think both of their designations appear less than ten times in the whole of Scripture. But without going to the other verses that speak of them, there's an indication that they were a subgroup of the Philistines or they were a people that were closely associated with the Philistines. And they served as the king's bodyguard, sort of like the Secret Service would protect the president of the United States. These were the elite forces that would protect the king. And isn't it ironic that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel 
But those who were naturally the enemies of Israel were still devoted to David. More irony. And along with them, there were the Gittites, a contingent of Philistines who had joined David, most likely when he had been hiding out in Philistia for 16 months when he was on the run from Saul. There was this contingent that had stayed with David over the years. And their leader, who was apparently new to his post, Ittai, the leader of the 600 Gittites, well, David urged him to go back to Jerusalem. He said, look, you came to me just yesterday. Now, David probably didn't mean literally yesterday, but, but it's an expression saying like, look, you, you just got here. Are you now going to go with me out in the wilderness? I don't even know where I'm going. You're already a foreigner. You're a stranger in this land. At least go back where it's safe and more secure for you and your family, your kids, your soldiers. You see what David's doing? He's looking out for the interest of others. Whereas Absalom is using people to serve his own interests, David is looking out for people. He's doing what he believes is best for them. And that's exactly the kind of leader that people love to follow. Whether people know it or not, I was reading a book the other day called Wisdom and Leadership. There are three questions that people are always asking whether they're aware of it or not in relation to those that would lead them. Can I trust you? Do you care about me? And are you committed? Are you committed to this team? Are you committed to what we're trying to accomplish? Are you still really with us? Do you have skin in the game? Well, David's reputation preceded him. The quality of his character spoke for itself. And Ittai uses a double oath to affirm his allegiance. He even uses the covenant name of the Lord, which indicates Ittai himself was probably a worshiper of the true God. He said, as the Lord lives, and as my Lord, small l, my master, the king lives, that's where I will be wherever you go, whether that means life or death. And I thought, man, Ittai was able to answer an unequivocal yes to all three of these questions. Can I trust you? Absolutely. Do you care about me? You've just shown that you care about me. And are you committed to this? Yes, you are. I thought, you know, if Ittai, in such a short time with David, could see that for himself and show such allegiance to him, how much more should we as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ be committed to following him? Think of those questions again. Can I trust you? Is he not totally trustworthy? Do you care about me? He loved us so much he gave his life for us. And are you totally in this? All scripture indicates that Jesus is all in. He is in this for our eternal good and for the glory of God. We have every reason to follow him with all our hearts. And that's why Paul said in Philippians 1, I expect and hope that I will not fail Christ in anything, but that I will have the courage now as always to show the greatness of Christ in my life here on earth, whether I live or die, to me, the only important thing about living is Christ. 
and dying would be profit for me. How these words ought to challenge us. Who or what are you living for? What are you or who are you prepared to die for? Where does your loyalty lie? Paul's loyalty was to the ultimate king who was totally trustworthy, who loves his people more than we can imagine, and is eternally committed to their good. But those who serve themselves are not submitted to God's will. Nobody was more submitted to God's will than his own son, the Lord Jesus. David, in his very best moments, was a preview of King Jesus and what he endured for us. We catch a glimpse of this in verse 23. And all the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. You know, the brook Kidron is mentioned just one time in the New Testament. John 18, 1, which says, When Jesus had spoken these words, talking about his high priestly prayer for his disciples in John 17, and the words he spoke at the Passover meal where he instituted the Lord's Supper, saying, The bread is my body which is for you. This cup is my blood which is poured out for you. After Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples and crossed the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And it was there in that garden the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was in such agony of spirit that he broke into a sweat of blood, with drops so great falling to the ground as he prayed more and more earnestly. Not even David knew that kind of agony when he crossed the brook Kidron. And think about this. When David crossed the brook Kidron, He was suffering the consequences of his own sin. When Jesus crossed the brook Kidron, he was about to suffer the punishment for our sins, not his. Yet in both cases, David and his greater descendant, the Lord Jesus, in both cases, these men were strengthened by God. We read in the Gospels that the Lord sent an angel from heaven to strengthen Christ in the garden. And we see that God sent messengers. That's what the word angel means. But these messengers came in the form of faithful friends who sustained David in the midst of his trial. Look at verses 24 to 28. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let the Lord do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimehaz, And Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, see, I will wait at the forge of the wilderness until word comes back from you to inform me. As Abiathar, Zadok, and all the Levites demonstrate their loyalty to David, he shows his loyalty, his submission to God. 
He says the Ark of the Covenant belongs in Jerusalem. David knows that his restoration to the throne is not dependent on God's furniture, but on God's favor. David trusts in God's providence rather than the symbol of God's presence. And I think there's just a little bit of a side lesson for us in this. And that is that religious objects have no power to protect us. Whether it be a Bible under our pillow, whether it be a cross on a chain around our neck, it's okay to to wear those things as long as we understand that there is no power or blessing attached to that object. God tells us to turn to Him for help, not to another person or object or ritual that we believe possesses some kind of spiritual power or blessing. God is fully sovereign. He is fully free. He cannot be manipulated. No object that we possess, no ritual that we perform has any influence over his actions. The Lord says, turn to me. Look to me. Trust in me. And we convey that trust through prayer. And so we read in verses 29 to 31, So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. As David ascends the mountain physically, he sinks to his lowest point emotionally, weeping as he goes. And it spreads by contagion. Everybody with him is weeping. This is a sad, dark moment. And just when it appears that things couldn't get any worse, he finds that Ahithophel, his counselor, has joined the conspiracy with Absalom. Elsewhere we read, not only that Ahithophel was David's counselor, but the words he spoke were like the words of God. Like there was no better counselor in Israel than Ahithophel. There's some other texts that indicate why he might have joined Absalom's conspiracy. There's some good reason to believe that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. How the What's the expression? The chickens have come home to roost. It was probably right about this time as David is ascending the mountain, as he is weeping as he goes, that he probably prayed the words recorded in Psalm 3, which Brother Jay read earlier. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory in the one who lifts up my head. I cry to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. David's making no power grab here. He's giving himself to God. He's committing himself to the care of God. He's showing his full dependence upon the Lord. 
It may have been at this time when he finds about, out about Hithophel's betrayal that David also prayed the words of Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. The picture is that of a vicious horse who kicks his own master in the face. Jesus quoted this exact verse in, re- in reaction to Judas's betrayal, saying, the scripture will be fulfilled. The suffering that David endured prefigured the ultimate suffering that Christ would endure for us. It bears repeating that as Jesus led his disciples out of the city of Jerusalem, across the brook Kidron, and up the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, he was following in the footsteps of his ancestor David, his royal ancestor. The sufferings of David prefigured the ultimate sufferings of the Son of God 1,000 years later. Just as David was submitted to God's will, so Jesus was also in the superlative sense. Moments ago, we, we sang in one of our songs the words of Christ in Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. In essence, this is what David was praying in this dark moment. But as he prays, going up the mountain, weeping as he goes with all the people with him, yet another friend appears. Verses 32 to 37. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head, a sign of grief. David said to him, If you go on with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you tell from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there. Ahimaaz, and Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. And we'll continue this account next week. But for now, I want you to see that David's prayer did not lead to passivity on his part. In fact, David sees the arrival of Hushai the archite as a direct answer to his prayer. David had just prayed, Lord, uh, uh, cause the council of Ahithophel to come to nothing. And all of a sudden, Hushai, uh, Hushai the archite, his friend, his counselor, shows up. Behold, Hushai. David sees this as an answer to prayer. So far, then, uh, far from giving himself to passivity, David now puts together a plan and executes it. And again, I think John Woodhouse offers some very good observations at this point, saying, quote, There is no tension or contradiction in biblical thought between asking the Lord to cause something to happen and then working hard to make that very thing come about. The sovereignty of God on which our prayers depend does not undermine human responsibility and initiative. Quite the opposite. David worked to accomplish precisely what he asked the Lord to do. When David's scheme succeeded, the narrator is perfectly clear that this was the Lord's doing. End quote. So, if you're praying for a job, (laughs) 
Get out there and search for one. Keep praying, but go searching. Do some networking online and in person. Contact some companies. Get your resume out there. If you're praying that God would give you a godly spouse, get connected with other single Christians. Go out on some dates. You get the idea. Even recently, I've been facing some challenges here even at, at the church level from, in terms of my own pastoral responsibilities, things I've been praying about. And the Lord's like, okay, Matt, keep praying, but I want you to do some certain things. Take some active steps to address these things. The most important thing we can do, the most important action we can take is cultivate a close walk with God. And that's what David did, ironically, in his darkest moments. Remember that those who join Jesus join him in his sufferings, even as Ittai and others joined David in his. Romans 8.17 reminds us that we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That day for David had not yet come, but it was nonetheless real even as he walked through the valley of the shadow of death, he knew that God's goodness and mercy would follow him all the days of his life. And in God's time and in God's way, he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Lord God, Earlier in our service, we sung about you being our greatest treasure, the wellspring of our soul. And yet, Lord, we confess that there are times that we take our eyes off Jesus and look for other things, other people, other pursuits, other accomplishments to bring us the satisfaction that is only found in you. Lord, please forgive us for believing the lie that image is everything. For we know deep in our hearts, at least those of us who have come to know Christ as our Savior, that Christ is everything. He is our all in all. And yet, Lord, at times, in the dark moments, we can forget that. We take our eyes off our Savior and we get them onto our circumstances and we start bemoaning about our body image or what other people think of us, the impression that we're giving others, how we're performing in their eyes. And yet we're reminded that the gospel of Christ is the only reality in which the verdict comes before the performance. In Christ, we are fully justified. We don't have to earn your grace, God. It is given to us freely through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, your son, who paid the price for our sins and rose victoriously from the grave. And your word tells us that we are fully accepted in the beloved. 
So Lord, help us to eschew the politics of pomp. Help us not to be duped by the politics of promises. Help us not to be taken over by the politics of pleasing people. Whether we're a pawn in somebody else's game or we're trying to make people pawns in the maneuvering we're doing. Oh Lord, we are such great sinners, but you are a great, great Savior. I pray that we would desire you more than anything or anyone else. We pray that you would be indeed the wellspring of our soul and the greatest treasures of our lives. We pray in your holy name. Amen.